0: It is naive to think that only eating disorder dietitians are seeing people with dysfunctional eating behaviors.
1: Hello, welcome to The Seasoned RD, a podcast connecting newer professionals in the field of eating disorders. To those of us who have been around for a while,
2: I'm your host, Beth Harrell, a certified eating disorders registered dietitian and supervisor. And I'm Abby Brown, a registered dietitian who is newer to the field. I think of myself as a well-seasoned cast iron skillet With wisdom and experience, yet always ready for something new. And I think of myself as an Instapot with innovation
1: and a fresh perspective. This podcast brings both to the table to share ingredients, recipes, and techniques of past and present so we can all be our best for
2: the future. The kettle is heating up. The skillet is on simmer. So join us around the table for true professional nourishment. Abby, ready to stir the pot? Let's do it. All right, welcome to the Seasoned RD or welcome back to the Seasoned RD podcast. We are nearing 24,000 downloads, folks, and I am so grateful to all of you who have listened to previous episodes and who have been with us in the past, and we're really excited to have you join us now. We'd love to hear from you, a rating or quick comment, no matter which podcatcher you're listening with so we can continue bringing what's important to you. We have a long list of really exciting professionals coming your way and a third medical series in the spring of 2023, so stay tuned. Our guest today for an encore is Jessica Setnick, and she talks about what she uncovered in a survey about dietitian preparedness and confidence levels in treating eating disorders. The reality is dietitians, therapists, medical providers, we don't get much education about eating disorders. We're just led to believe that if we don't specialize in the area of eating disorders, we don't need to know much because we're not really seeing them. And you've heard previous guests of this podcast talk about the importance of asking that simple question about eating as we conceptualize plan and goals. So whether you're a cardiologist or a dietitian in a supermarket setting, nursing home, or someone who works in sports, you are seeing disordered eating and eating disorders. Jessica talks about helping people with nutrition by not putting them into diagnostic boxes, but recognizing eating behaviors that range from positive and supportive to harmful and destructive. She says the best gift of CEDS, or Certified Eating Disorder Specialist certification, is requiring supervision it is the gift that keeps on giving but just a reminder that supervision is not just for CEDS certification in my groups i have therapists and dietitians together some who are already certified some who are not and are not anticipating becoming certified they're for professional development and collaboration. So dietitians can claim continuing education units for professional development. I haven't had a doc in my group yet, but I would love to. So if you're thinking about it, let me know. So Jessica talks about what she uncovered in the survey, and also there's some links in the show notes to a handout that she gave us, and you can learn directly from her in her boot camps and eating disorder boot camps and sleepless dietitian supervision group. Finally, if you also feel like your formal education has left you feeling a bit in the dark, come join me in my master's elective course online through GPIDA idea, where the topic is nutrition therapy for eating disorders. Start soon. So check it out. Links are in the show notes. All right. We are here back with Jessica Setnick. So glad to have you back, Jessica.
1: I am so glad to be
2: back. I love to see your faces, hear your voices, and be together.
1: We're so excited to learn about the survey you are going to chat with us about today.
0: Oh, yeah. But we can talk about anything. I'm an open book. I'll talk about whatever's going on. In the world that we have to address, but yes, the the article it's really has the super boring name: "A Survey of Registered Dietitian Nutritionists Who Provide Care to Clients with Eating Disorders." Colon implications for education, training, and clinical practice. Doesn't that sound like a journal article title? It is. Sounds like a sleeper. Yeah, but it's actually amazing. It's fascinating, yep. and it has a great backstory too. It was rejected by the Journal of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which I think is probably its best
2: credential. (laughs) Okay. I mean, tell us about it because we will definitely put the link in the show notes. Oh, yeah. Why was it rejected? Do you know?
0: Oh, yeah. And one of the quotes on why it was rejected was actually included in the article. One of the things that we asked dietitians, 187 dietitians who work in the eating disorder field were surveyed or responded. And one of the critiques that the editor of the Academy journal said was that it was impossible that only two of our 187 respondents had encountered eating disorder patients in their internship, like before they got a job, because every, every nutrition textbook has a chapter on eating disorder. So... That therefore means every dietitian has encountered eating disorders in school. Yeah, exactly. Because a book chapter, that's how you learn, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So yeah, no. So this was actually published in the Journal of Critical Dietetics, which I didn't know very much about, but I love the title and I was kind of critical in the discussion and I love that they love that. Really, it's an article that uplifts dietitians while at the same time sort of dogging the process that we go through to become dietitians, because it really lacks eating disorder training. There are so many people who have dysfunctional eating behaviors, especially compared to the number of people who actually have eating disorder diagnoses, especially compared to the number of, or the way it's portrayed in school, at least to me in school, eating disorders was portrayed as something that was very rare. And it was a, you know, a specialty area. And we know now that, you know, if as many as 1 in 10 but it might be even less individuals with eating disorders actually get eating disorder specialty care the other 9 out of 10 either get no care or are getting care in a diabetes clinic or an oncology service and so dietitians no matter what area they work in need competence to help individuals with eating disorders because they're not only among the eating disorder dietitians so that's the inspiration for the survey it actually came from a study that was published in the academy journal about diabetes dietitians saying that diabetes dietitians didn't feel like they had enough education and that general practice dietitians didn't have enough education for the diabetes care that they were doing even not in a diabetes specific practice area. And so Paula Quatramoni, one of my co-authors, she had the idea to sort of leapfrog off of that and say, okay, so they published an article about how general dietitians don't have enough diabetes information. Let's do a similar survey of eating disorder dietitians, And then that, our mm-hmm. survey was rejected, even though we we based it off of the survey that was published. So I'm not really sure what that was about. I do remember I took one of the rejection comments a little bit personally. It was something like, you said that you pulled your survey with members of IFED. Is that even a real organization? And what? it may not have exactly said that, but that's what, what I, what that's I what heard in part. Like.
1: Gosh. That's what it felt like. Yeah. There's so, a thousand uh, yes, dietitians. it is a real and,
0: organization. Right? Yeah, I right? I
2: know. Isn't, yeah. Is, yeah. <laughs> IFED is just for anyone who's just joining us or coming into the field, International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. But it's not just dietitians, and it's dietitians in all practices, not just eating disorder. Right. That's right. It's eating disorder interested. Yes, uh-huh. absolutely. And. The
0: the membership fee is only $25. I sort of modeled it on a DPG, although it's a DPG that is not part of the academy. So it's, you don't have to be a member. It's just $25 to join, and, and we never want that to be a barrier so we can waive that fee if needed for anyone who wants to join. And then students can join for $10 until you become an RD and we have an amazingly generous listserv and tons of resources on the website. And then when we do amazing surveys like this, and another one's coming out soon on the connection between COVID-19 and eating disorders. So, you know, in the same breath as I talk smack about the Academy, I can also tell you that I will be presenting at Fancy this year in Orlando on the connections between COVID-19 and eating disorders of which I've heard many 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 from my supervisees but we'll actually be doing me and my co-presenter Mary Beth Cavanaugh will be doing a survey to find out dietitians experience in their own voices and so that survey will be coming out in the next couple of weeks so i i'm really a fan of dietitians doing research but we don't really have time i mean until i basically retired from client care I didn't have time to do any of this other stuff. And, and mostly the things that I do are facilitated by someone who works in a university who has grad students who can do the lit review and things like that. Because of course, my way of writing things is to write things and then go find research to back it up, which is not the most efficient (laughs) method. That wouldn't fly necessarily. (laughs) It did work for me. I know this is off the topic, but maybe in the past six months, I don't know if one of you got this email also, but I got an email from the American Psychiatric Association asking if I would be a reviewer for their guidelines on the treatment of eating disorders.
2: Oh, and I said, yes,
0: I didn't know why they were asking a dietitian, but I didn't ask questions. And I reviewed the guidelines and I found them to be heinous, sorely lacking, utterly dependent on BMI. And I wrote uh-huh. all of my comments and they had this very specific I don't know what the right word is, grid, that you had to write your comments in. So you had to write the line item of what you were commenting on and what was your comment and then what was your evidence for your comment and then what, what were your citations for your comment. And so I did the whole thing. I put a lot of effort into it and you know, there were a lot of things that I had issues with a lot, Um, but one of the main things that I took issue with was the idea that there should be goal weights and BMI weights, BMI goal BMIs for people. And they included goal BMIs for people with binge eating disorder. It was a big old mess. It was really awful. And so I got an email maybe a few weeks after I submitted it saying we we weren't clear on the part where you said you did or didn't want to be listed as a reviewer of these guidelines. And I said, I would be happy to be listed as a reviewer, but not if, only if you take all my suggestions and implement Uh them. If there's anything left in this guideline about BMI, I do not want my name associated with it. So I'm pretty sure when it comes out, my name will not be associated with it because I can't see them actually taking out all that stuff about BMI, even though they should. And I wrote about how it makes them seem like an outdated organization, yada, yada, yada.
2: Well, Um, I think their last guidelines were 2004, weren't they? Like, this is sorely lacking. Yes. Yes. It's just, and this is not the guidelines for
0: the, for the levels of care. This is the guidelines for actual assessment by psychiatrists. So again, I'm not sure why they asked me, but if they open that door, I'm going to stick my foot in it.
2: Thank God. So I did. Yeah, that's good. But
0: those are the kind of things that where I, you know, have a, having a full caseload of clients, I wouldn't have time to do. So it, you know, research is something that it's, it's one of those things that in our survey, we found that most dietitians are not participating in research, but that's how we end up with not a very robust evidence base. Now, the solution to that, I think, is You know the grassroots solution is dietitians doing supervision. And as many problems as there are with the IADEP certification, as you both well know, especially you, Beth, having been the certification chair, it still gave the best gift I can think of to dietitians, which is requiring supervision with a more experienced dietitian. And I think that that is the gift that keeps on giving. And it's just uh, you know we don't hear about that in school that you don't have to have all the answers. You can talk through your challenges with another dietitian and not just your specific sort of case consultation, but also the challenges of being a dietitian. And so that's sort of our solution to, we don't have necessarily a lot of, you know, evidence in the literature, but we have evidence in the form of experience of more experienced dietitians. Now, the, the problem that we found in our survey is that dietitians working in eating disorder care had limited access to that kind of training or mentorship from expert dietitians, because a they're so busy doing their job and going from, you know, client to client but b because it's not supported by their facility. So a lot of dietitians are the only dietitian in their facility and they don't have a more experienced dietitian to learn from or they are, you know, in a group of dietitians but those dietitians don't really have an allotted time. They may have a staff meeting but they don't have a time where they can, you know, discuss and learn from each other and if they are pursuing supervision, in many cases, they're paying for it out of their own pocket, even right. though it's a benefit to their workplace to have a more educated dietitian. And I always encourage my supervisees to ask about an education budget because absolutely supervision can be covered by an education budget because you can get CEUs for CEs, it. Yeah. And you and I have been around and around and around the block with CDR about how many CEUs you can get for supervision. But the final answer is, one hour for one hour. So you can get CEUs. So absolutely supervision counts as education and should be paid for from an educational budget. But these are the kind of things that in the survey we found out that dietitians want. And I can share with you from my own experience consulting with eating disorder facilities that there's a real fear on the part of the administrations I've worked with. I can't say it's across the board. I can only say from my own experience, but a real fear of asking dietitians what they would want in order to stick around longer than a couple of years. And, you know, the worry that, well, they'll just want sixty thousand more dollars. And I really discourage that kind of thinking because you don't know what a dietitian might want until you ask. You know, if you said, what would it take for you to stick around five to seven years here instead of leaving after two once you get experience enough to go out on your own? And so as an experiment, I asked the dietitians at a facility that question, knowing that I had no power to grant any of their wishes, but it was amazing what they said. Two of them said, well, we room together and we can never go on vacation because there's no one to cover. We, We can have, you know, we can cover for one dietitian being out, but we can't ever have two dietitians out at the same time. So we can never do anything fun together. So we'd really appreciate some PRN coverage. And another dietitian said, I'd like to learn Spanish so that I could communicate better with our Spanish speaking clientele. And someone else said, I'd love to go to Fenty, you know, every other year or something like that. And so it was really impressive that, you know, these the administration was afraid dietitians would ask for sixty thousand more dollars each or something like that. And really the things that they wanted probably would cost less than five thousand dollars per person. And those dieticians would have stayed longer. And within two years, all of those dieticians were gone. So that's what we had. I think our main finding was in the survey is not something that we didn't already know. But again, now it's added to the literature base, which is that there's an inverse relationship between dietitian expertise and patient acuity. So the highest levels of care with the most acute patients are the levels with the newest, freshest dieticians who may have tons of enthusiasm and heart but don't have the clinical experience to manage some of the more difficult situations. And they're not getting the supervision from dietitians who do have that expertise. So that I think is a disservice to the clients. And that's really where it should be a biggest concern to the higher up. Of course, we know that patient care is not always the number one concern of the Mm. muckety mucks Mm -hmm. and that's a whole different issue,
2: but that's, that was one of the main findings of the survey. Yeah. And as you're talking about the gift of supervision and, you know, we're not talking necessarily about certification. We're talking about professional development and that can be so important. If someone becomes certified, they get 75 CEs, right? So then they are also a certified eating disorder specialist, but, even just getting continuing education from professional development what do you think about i was just listening to a podcast the other day and one of the guests is is supervising other people and they've been in the field for 5 years that's all they're not certified so there's not a like a credential to support that but That's my other concern is like we were talking about supervision and then people hanging their hats like, you know, after only five years. Well, but I think that that person,
0: even after only five years, has something to offer of value. It it depends on what they're supervising on, right? I mean, if you've never worked in a higher level of care, probably wouldn't be appropriate to supervise on a higher level of care. But if you, let's say, have a marginalized identity may be very appropriate to supervise on helping clients with marginalized identities. So I think that some of the things that we may supervise on are things that are less dependent on your expertise in the field and more dependent on your own personal experience or your type of experience that you've had. So I, sure. I, I guess because I'm thinking of someone like Body Image with Bree, Brianna Campos, she's only been a therapist, I think, for maybe five years, maybe even a little bit less. But she's amazing at what she does, you know, as a fat activist and as a body image therapist. So I don't know. I think some people have gifts in certain areas. And so I would just say there's no perfect fit between a supervisor and supervisee except that personality match. And, and, you know, this person is helpful in the way that I need them to be because someone could be experienced for 30 years and not have the specific type of expertise that perhaps a supervisee needs. So I would caution on gauging just based on years in practice, but at the same time, yes, there probably are people not giving good advice. And that's, I think, true of anything. So, you know, do, is it, is it a matter of gatekeeping it, or is it a matter of supervisees being wise consumers and determining if the person that they're hiring to do their supervision is giving appropriate advice? Because honestly, you could work in a facility and you're, dietitian manager could be giving you bad advice too. Uh, I was going to say uh, even
2: if you have 30 years experience you could be giving bad right. advice. outdated
0: advice. Yeah, mm-hmm.
2: absolutely.
0: So, yeah. So, I don't know. It's it's hard to say what's best and I agree with you. I think that sometimes certification certifies people who aren't necessarily qualified, but I also think that it is better than having nothing. And until someone shows me what is a better alternative, I'll still support certification even with the many, 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 many problems with it. I think I've probably been, at the same time as I've been a vociferous critic of the IADEP certification, I would wager that I am also the person who has signed the most supervision and recommendation letters total <laughs> for therapists, <laughs> dietitians, and other professionals, because I do, I do believe in it. But yeah, I think that you still, even if someone's certified as a supervisor or not, I think you still have to make sure they Have the type of experience that you're looking for.
2: Quick break here to give a big shout out to the sponsor of today's episode. I really appreciate the support from Great Plains Idea. And Great Plains Idea is an online master's degree in dietetics program, it's diverse just like our profession. I have mentioned in the past that I teach a course in the fall called Nutrition Therapy for Eating Disorders Through Great Plains Idea. So you can choose from a variety of courses to elevate your leadership skills, help you apply cutting-edge information in clinical nutrition, public health nutrition, healthcare administration, or nutrition needs across the lifespan. So you can tailor your degree to enhance your practice and meet your professional goals. Courses are completely online, so you can fit them in around work and family. To learn more, check out gpidea.org or visit the link in our show notes. I really like the example that you brought up of body image with Brie because it is that lived experience or the lived expertise that really makes this whole field rich when we, when we collaborate with the others that we don't have that experience with. So... Yeah. You mentioned dysfunctional eating behaviors, and this is something that you've been talking about for a while now, but anyone new listening to the podcast may not have that background. And and if you want to talk a little bit more about the survey, that's great too, but I don't know if you can connect people with the idea of the, the four pillars or the four areas.
0: Oh, sure, sure, sure. So the idea of dysfunctional eating behaviors is just I was looking for a phrase that that stepped us away from eating disorders because eating disorders, either for you know health and medical professionals, we think of the diagnostic criteria, which exclude a lot of people or for the general public eating disorders is sort of you know, one or two avatars or persona of people that they sort of envision, this is what an eating disorder looks like, or this is the type of person that has eating disorder. And so through that, we, you know, either lens, we are excluding so many people who struggle with their eating. And so I was looking for a phrase that, that was not used and didn't have sort of a pre-established definition in people's minds. And so I came up with dysfunctional eating behaviors. It's not necessarily the end-all be-all. It's just a phrase that I use you know, there's probably other phrases that could have been equivalent, but I use dysfunctional eating behaviors to open the field and say, anyone who eats can have eating behaviors. Anyone who eats can have dysfunctional eating behaviors. So some people's eating behaviors are positive and inspirational and, you know, supporting their life and goals, whatever those are. And some people's eating behaviors are dysfunctional, meaning that they are not supporting their life and goals. They're taking them away from their life and goals or maybe even to the point where they're threatening their life and goals. And that's when we dietitians get involved is when someone is in the situation where their eating behaviors are not helpful for them. I mean, very occasionally we might see someone whose eating behaviors are just spot on and we reassure them and, you know, send them on their merry way. But I would say the majority of the time, of course, we're helping someone whose eating behaviors are not supporting their life and goals and and need to make a change or want to make a change or choose to make a change. And that's what we're facilitating. And, And I think a lot of people don't realize that, of course, they think we just tell people what to do. They don't realize that we are the implementers and the planners and the managers and the supporters and the cheerleaders. But that is what we do. It's with those individuals who have dysfunctional eating behaviors. And part of my goal in using that terminology was to Stop hearing the things that I used to hear like this. Oh, we're having a conference on weight management in children, but you submitted this proposal on eating disorders and we didn't accept it because we're not focusing on eating disorders this year. And, you know, how is that not related, right? Or the I've spoken to multiple academy presidents and said, why does eating disorders never make it into the top 10? what is it called? They have a list of top 10 action items. I'm, I'm not using the right terminology. And I've heard multiple times, well, eating disorders are just so rare, they're never going to make it into the top 10. And I can look at that top 10. And I can tell you, you know, let's start hunger and malnutrition, food insecurity, eating disorders right there, diabetes, eating disorders right there, renal disease eating disorders right there, right? We can go down the whole list, environmental nutrition, eating disorders right there. We can go down the entire list, child malnutrition, eating disorders right there. And every single thing will be related to eating disorders, but people don't see it because those words are sort of like a a closed door. So dysfunctional eating behaviors was the idea of trying to open that door and say, everybody needs to be included. Every dietitian needs to understand and my favorite line in the article that I can't find to quote you, but basically it says something like, it is naive to think that only eating disorder dietitians are seeing people with dysfunctional eating behavior. So that's the genesis of that. And then the four paths is the idea that there are, are so many different paths to dysfunctional eating behaviors, but we need to cook up or, or determine, I should say, the the origins of someone's dysfunctional eating behavior, because I think there are a lot of things that we call eating disorders that are actually different illnesses. And I think that remains to be seen in the future with a lot of research. And I think we'll, we'll see it later. We'll see it play out. But right now, we're just treating everyone with eating disorders the same way and not everyone gets better. And, and then sometimes we blame it on them and that's unfortunate.
2: And it fits really well with dieticians because we don't diagnose, we don't that's not our job. What we are doing is, is meeting people with, with malnutrition for whatever reason. And we're, we're, we're understanding the psychology behind that, or maybe even the trauma or we don't have to diagnose, but we can be there to help folks get through just fueling their body well and, and not having well, to and put the them into a power. I think of
0: dietitians is that at the end of the day, you may have, you know, negative relationship with your spouse, or you might have, you know, overwhelming time commitments at work. But as dietitians, we get to say, regardless of what else is going on in your life, you have a body, it needs nourishment. How can I help you do that? And it really makes our job, I'm not saying our job is easy, but it makes our goal very clear. Right at, at the end of every session, we want to leave each client with some kind of action item of what they need to be doing in order to get closer to their goals. And I think that's something that I think if I were a therapist, a psychotherapist, mental health counselor, I would I would struggle with the idea of wait, I just have to listen to this person and and kind of you know not have necessarily. Uh, and, and I know therapists do have goals and, and action items, but but we have that very direct, overarching goal of better nutrition for this person. Now, sometimes there are crisis situations that get in the way, but we're still aiming towards that goal. And I love that because it gives us great direction. And I think it, it separates us from anyone else on the healthcare team because we're so goal oriented in a way that I, I don't know that anyone else on the team is. It's a luxury in a way to be that goal oriented.
1: We keep, I feel, tossing around disordered eating versus eating disorders, but it almost feels like, I don't know, kind of odd to just say, like, oh, it's disordered eating. So I like the idea of having a real set name, like, okay, this is how we're going to categorize these things. Are you planning on like coming out with like guidelines as to how you could? how someone could be categorized as that? So I've always disliked the term disordered eating. And, you
0: know, I'd, I've never understood the line between disordered eating and eating disorder. So to me, the, the categories are, are your, are your eating behaviors positive and supportive to your life? Are your eating behaviors neutral to your life? Are your eating behaviors harmful to your life? Are your eating behaviors destructive to your life? Are your eating behaviors threatening your life? And to me, that's the continuum there. And if someone wanted to draw a line somewhere and say, on this side of the line are disordered eating and on this side are eating disorders, be my guess. But that's just not the way I view it. I view it as, do you have problems with your eating? And if so, then you need help. And the diagnostic criteria have gotten so bastardized into insurance guidelines of, who does and doesn't deserve help and that's ridiculous. Everyone needs help. And so again, you know, I, I wanted to change the conversation by changing the words that we use. And the the place where I guess I, I promote it the most is in eating disorders boot camp. I really that's my platform. It's not a book, I guess. It's it's a workshop three workshops and you know it's a home study course now but that's really how I've spread my message and thousands of dietitians have taken eating disorders boot camps so I do think a lot of people practice in that model i it probably is included in my books without me even really thinking about it but i suppose at some point i could write a journal article about it but then a journal has to accept it and that's just such a gatekeepered process so to me i'm more of a grassrootsy person so thank you i'm glad you support my my sort of my philosophy but I think of it more as something that we dietitians do as opposed to something that comes from the top down mm-hmm. for sure And dietitians really relate to it because it's what we've always been doing right I've only just put different words on it but dietitians have always been trying to figure out what's going on with someone's eating we don't take that diagnosis and say oh this person has a, has a diagnosis of arfid I know exactly what to do. We say, oh, this person has a diagnosis of ARFID. Tell me about the progression. How did it start? Where are we now? And sometimes the dietitian determines this person doesn't even meet criteria for ARFID. They were just given the ARFID diagnosis as sort of like, I don't know what to do with this client, so I'll put them in this box. And I actually had a supervisee say something like, I think that I might have a client who has binge eating disorder, but they've been diagnosed with arfid. Well, that's all it is, is a diagnosis. It's not a condition, right? And so that's where I feel like the diagnoses and the diagnostic criteria really fail us. But as dietitians, we don't care because we're still going after what is the root of the problem here. That's the way we work. And it just makes sense to us to look at things that way. So I think the dietitian, I don't want to pit members of the team against each other and say, you know, someone's more valuable than another because everyone brings things to the team. But when it comes to diagnosing, I think that the fact that we don't diagnose makes us very valuable because it lets Absolutely. us be willing to see a bigger picture than That's sort right. of the, the you know, just the narrow focus of a diagnosis.
2: Putting people in a box, putting people's experiences yeah. in a box. So yeah. can Doesn't we, work. we're going to link to that, the survey for sure. Okay. Okay. You have a handout on dysfunctional eating behaviors. Is that available anywhere? Oh, sure. The The origins of dysfunctional eating behaviors model, I think, is what yeah. you're talking about. Yes. Yeah. I can send you a link to that. I'm sure it's somewhere on my website. <laughs> I may be. Abby and I may be able to find it, too. But I no, think that no. That I'll c- just
0: send you a link. That's absolutely. I'd be happy to because that's something that again i feel like it vindicates and validates what we already do as dietitians it's not i don't think of it as something i invented i just think of it as something i put together you know the brain power that dietitians already are using i just put it into words and put it on in a structure and i will say that when i presented it at a eating disorder conference i was appalled and yet happy but shocked still that, and it was to multiple professionals, that two comments that I had afterwards from participants, one was a dietitian came up to me and said, the person sitting next to me was not a dietitian and said, I don't understand why a dietitian is presenting at this conference. Why am I listening to a dietitian talk about eating disorders? And the dietitian said, well, do you know everything she's saying? Because if not, you should be here and you should be listening. Mm-hmm. And I thought, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing was a PhD psychologist said to me I really enjoyed your presentation. I work in a behavioral health hospital and it made your presentation made me realize maybe I should go downstairs and meet the dietitians that work in my hospital. And again, I was appalled because what? But also glad if I was able to open some people's eyes about what it is that we dietitians do. We're very smart we are very competent, we are very capable, we do an amazing job. We're just Mm -hmm. not so conceited that we blab about it to everyone. And maybe we need to (laughs) not think of that as being conceited. Maybe we need to think about it as marketing. And we need to share more what we're doing. The problem then becomes where are people looking for what we're doing? And that's in the peer-reviewed journals. And let me just tell you, as a reviewer for multiple peer-reviewed journals, I... I wonder, always wonder, why did I say I would review this article? And then I remember when I see how crummy it is and I realize how much it needs to change. Someone has to be the voice of sense. But I can just tell you as a dietitian, whatever you have to say is at least as good as what is being submitted to these journal articles. We just don't take the time or have the time or make the time. And I wish there was a graduate student out there or multiple students out there who just want to interview dietitians and get case studies. I mean, it would be so great if we published more because even though we don't need that to prove our worth, there are other people who do use journal articles as the evidence for what we do. Oh, that reminds me, I had an amazing idea in my sleep the other night. I am going to start up an IFED IRB. I've started an IRB before at a facility I consulted for, it's not that hard. And so iFed is going to have our own IRB. So therefore dietitians who aren't affiliated with the university can have an IRB to submit their research to because of course then the gatekeeper part of the journals is if you didn't get IRB approval they won't publish your article. What is an IRB? Oh, it stands for Institutional Review Board and it's one of those gatekeepered academia things that is basically, it it actually has good origins. It comes from, basically, remember the starvation experiment, the Minnesota starvation experiment, and it basically comes from things like that and the Tuskegee Airmen experiments, and it's to protect human subjects in research studies, and so the idea is that if you want to have a legitimate research study, it has to be reviewed by a board, that determines that it is not going to harm people, harm participants. And so that's that's what it is. Now, most of the things that we as dietitians do would never come to that level of even having the possibility of harming someone, but it still has to be rubber stamped by an institutional review board to be sort of qualified to be in a peer-reviewed journal.
2: Yeah. Because like the Minnesota semi-starvation study could not pass the IRB today. So we're grateful for that, for what we have from it.
0: I just read on Instagram where apparently I get most of my education these days, that actually there were starvation studies done on indigenous children in those schools that they were put into. I know. And it was just heartbreaking to think that children were basically malnourished in order to study them. It's just awful. So yes, there are lots of good reasons to have an IRB. It just happens to be one more hoop to jump through when you're just trying to do a survey, you know, but you'd still have to have it approved. But like I said, I don't think any dieticians would be submitting anything that would even, you know, qualify as being rejected. They're usually exempt completely, but they have to get that rubber stamp. And I learned that the hard way by doing an amazing survey of a hundred people who had seen a dietitian for purposes of treatment of their eating disorder and how the dietitian helped them. And it was really quite impressive what they said, but it could not be published. It was published in the Scans Pulse, but it it can't be published in a peer-reviewed journal because there was no IRB. So I learned my lesson and now I know. And that's why we're going to start our own.
1: (laughs) You are like always three steps ahead of the game. I just pulled up the origins of dysfunctional eating behavior model. It's the first thing that pops up on Google. This thing is cool. Like I can see myself using this with parents of patients and helping them understand, you know, why, where this is coming from. This is great. Well, that's so interesting
0: that you say that because there is a whole wing of our field that is sort of spurred on by parents. And this model, they call it being agnostic about the causes of an eating disorder. They don't want to know what caused the eating disorder. They don't care. And I find that really fascinating because if you don't know the causes, how do you know you're treating them correctly? I mean, yes, certainly you can renourish someone, but we know that that doesn't solve everyone's eating disorder. So I appreciate that validation, Abby, and also the fact that you mentioned that it might be helpful for parents because I look at it and I think this is an amazing thing to help parents not feel guilt about having caused their child's Agreed. eating disorder, which so many parents do. And you know, so the idea that we're looking for a cause of an eating disorder is not to blame anyone. I think it's the opposite. It's to say there's so many factors that can affect someone's eating. How could you point a finger at any one person?
1: Especially the genes side of things. I feel like we're just on the brink of learning more about genetics and eating disorders. It's all very interesting. Oh my gosh. I
0: don't know if, Either of you is familiar. Anyone listening with Dr. Michael Luter. He's based here in Dallas. He used to be in Iowa. Oh, yes. Abby says yes with her body language. (laughs) He is doing so much. Oh, you were at that same. IFED meeting with me, right? Where he talked about all of the genetic mutations.
1: I missed that that one.
0: Finding. Oh, okay. Oh my God. It's really amazing. Beth. It is so weird. He's found mutations that relate to sleep disorders and that relate to satiety cues and, so many different things that basically cause what looks exactly like an eating disorder, but people have been to treatment a million times and have not gotten any relief. And he does this genome study and finds these mutations that they're not inherited. Some of them are, but he finds these mutations and then he's able to solve them sometimes with nutritional supplements, sometimes with over-the-counter medicine, it's so weird, and it's so fascinating, and he's totally going to be denounced as a quack, I promise you, but he is actually a many decades eating disorder researcher and psychiatrist, and he's an MD and PhD. I mean, this person is way, speaking of ahead of their time, Abby, he's so far ahead of his time that I'm pretty sure he's going to be denounced soon enough, but it doesn't matter because the clients who benefit from his work are really seeing huge results that they never saw in a treatment facility where they were getting the same treatment that we sort of consider standard and which does work for a lot of people, but it's not going to work to cure your genetic mutation, right? And unfortunately, I remember hearing in a treatment facility I was consulting with, one of the dietitians was also a nurse and she noticed that one of the residents had some sort of unusual bruising and some fatigue and other you know, other symptoms that could always be written off to malnutrition, right? I mean, you are a person with an eating disorder in an eating disorder facility, but she thought there was more to it. And she asked to have a blood test for the MTHFR mutation, and it was positive. And so this person started taking their methylated folate, blah, blah, blah. Well, I suggested to the administrator of the facility that it would be an amazing research study to do that test on everyone and find out because that's never been done. No one's ever said that individuals in treatment for an eating disorder have a higher percentage of this mutation than people in the general public, and it's already higher in the general public than anyone ever thought it was, right? So, you know, and the response I got back was, what? That blood test that cost me $300, you want me to do that on everyone? And I thought, oh, well, that's what it boils down to, apparently, in this facility. It's not about actually improving individuals' health, and it's not actually about adding to the evidence or knowledge base to help others. We're just focused on how much that one individual blood test costs. But the good news is that a full genome screen only costs less than $500 now. So we can have that information for a lot less of a cost. The technology is easily accessed. And so hopefully, I I agree with you, Abby, we're going to find out so much more about that. And hopefully, it will really improve treatment for those individuals that have either been called non-compliant or atypical or whatever, you know, people say when their treatment doesn't help someone. Instead, we'll be able to have more targeted treatment that will hopefully be more successful. Mm -hmm. But I will say, I will say, considering the limited knowledge that we have now, dietitians are amazing. And I think I wrote it in my first book in the preface in maybe 2003, it said 50 years from now, they're going to be amazed that we helped anyone. They're going to have so much more information about eating disorders. It's going to be shocking that we, with the limited information we had, we were able to help people. So I feel like instead of being perfectionist and feeling like, oh, I can't help every single person. We should just be thrilled at all the successes that we're able to have and all the people we are able to help have a better quality of life, even if we can't get them all the way maybe to remission or cure. We're doing an amazing job considering how little we know about what causes eating disorders. We still can't point to the broken body part. And, and that, that, that will be the day when we really understand how to help people with eating disorders is when we know what actually is the dysfunction. Right now, we just look at the symptoms. Oh, I could talk about this all day, but I'll, I know I'll that's what here, I was thinking. I know we've, we've had a wonderful hour together.
2: Almost this is if you could, because tie it up in a bow. Like, what do you want, professionals? We have medical and therapy and dietitians on listening to this podcast. If you could tie up in a bow, what you would like to for them to take from our conversation today? Can you do that? We talked about a lot.
0: I would say the number one thing would be whether you're a dietitian or not a dietitian, we need to advocate for the care that dietitians provide. If you are at all attached to the Eating Disorder Coalition or get action alerts, we need to get the Nutrition Care Act passed so that everyone who wants access to a dietitian will have it. We also need to have advocacy within each specific facility that there are more dietitians needed. We've got a published survey here that says dietitians don't have enough time to do all the things that they need to do, and that directly impacts patient care. So if you have a part-time dietitian at your addiction facility, ask, whoever's in charge, if you could get a full-time dietitian or full-time plus a part-time dietitian. You know, we need to have dietitians who have availability, not just to see clients, but also be involved in treatment team meetings and patient care and continuing education and things like that. And my philosophy is if you're not overstaffed, you're understaffed, because that means if you lose one dietitian to relocation or something like that, then you're understaffed immediately. It, that's the way i think most facilities are i know budgets are tight but if you think about the value that dietitians add to the bottom line i mean look at your patient satisfaction surveys they'll say one of two things they'll either say my dietitian was amazing and saved my life and was the key to my recovery or they'll say i didn't get to see my dietitian enough i'm very disappointed so either way that tells you you need
2: more dietitians yeah awesome jessica thank you for joining us again today
0: My pleasure. I love
2: it. We're going to attach this one, the link to your previous recording on this podcast so that people can hear the answers to your icebreaker questions. But also, you know, a year later, hearing from you in a fresh and different way, I'm going to just say, if you, no matter what profession you're in, I fed the International Federation of Eating Disorder Dietitians. It really is a great place. It's not expensive. It's $25. And like Jessica said, if that is a, if that's a hardship for you, then they can work with you. But there's just some really amazing professionals in that group and they will help you. They will help you. And I think that the gift of supervision is something that Jessica responded to today. And if you, you know, there's lots of great Information there, and if your question is too big for that platform, then you can connect with a supervisor that way too.
0: Can I mention that I have a supervision boot camp workshop coming up? I heard about this, so yeah. So, my supervision boot camp is a three hour workshop, it'll be live in Atlanta, but it'll also be live streamed everywhere. And I'll be answering the most common questions that I get during supervision, as well as questions from the audience. So I don't have an agenda that I will be, you know, lecturing on. It will just be those significant questions that come up over and over again. And I've started posting some of them on my Instagram and social media. And for example, I just posted this morning on what to do when a patient cries in sessions. Last week it was on making boundaries in the moment. And so, that's those are the kind of topics that I'm. I've also written this book called The Sleepless Dietitian's Book of Answers, and I'm tying it into the supervision boot camp because that makes me have a deadline to get it finished by. And <laughs> it's so it's been in the works so for a it, while. Yeah, for a while. And so that's really my. I'm I'm sharing all the things that I talk about in supervision repeatedly because not everyone has access to supervision one on one, but everyone still needs some of the same information. So yeah, I can send the links to. All all of that over to you so we can put them in the show notes if that's okay with you.
2: Awesome. All right. Well, thank you for joining us today, Jessica.
0: Of course. I love you guys.
2: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you also would take a moment, just hit pause and rate, review, and share. That means so much to me. In this podcast, we bring in medical, nutrition, and therapy professionals who share their passions to pique your interest in available modalities in the field of eating disorders. This show is intended to inform and educate it is not a substitute for the professional training and supervision required to specialize in the treatment of eating disorders, nor is it a substitute for medical, nutritional, or psychological advice from a professional or specialist. Let's lean on each other and learn from each other so we can grow together as professionals in this field of eating disorders. If you want to connect with me for supervision or membership with monthly content, please find me at BethHerald.com professionals.